1: Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is one of the most iconic college basketball coaches and announcers of the last half century. After leading Fordham to an improbable appearance in the Sweet 16 in 1971, he moved to Notre Dame and embarked on a legendary 20 year run, which included a Final Four two elite eights, seven sweet 16s, and six top 10 rankings. He faced 22 Hall of Fame coaches in his career and beat 20 of them at least once. And a record seven times, his teams beat the nation's top-ranked school, including an astonishing three in one 12-month span. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Digger Phelps. Digger, welcome.
2: Hi, uh, i it's, well, it's my pleasure to be on the show with you.
1: Excellent. Well, well, thank you, Digger, for coming on. Um, and let's just jump right into it. There's there's a lot of ground to cover here. Um, you you're born in Beacon, New York, uh, which is it's like a Hudson River town north of the city, and your dad ran a funeral home. And you went to Beacon High School and you were a basketball player and a golfer. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I uh sat on the bench most of the time. I check out the visiting team chair leaders. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's great. How What was uh, what was growing up in Beacon like?
2: Great little town, really diverse. And uh, my dad, who uh, was an undertaker, and our house was on one corner, and the, the funeral home was in the middle of the next block. And the most impressive thing he did one night, he came home from awake and, uh, to eat dinner. And he said to my two sisters and me, my younger sisters, that he said that all Religions are our religions, all colors of skins are our colors of skins, and all cultures are our culture, because when they lose a loved one, we got to get them through this grieving process, which back then was two days of a wake before the funeral. And that never left me. And uh, Beacon was a real diverse town, a small town not far from West Point, which was down the river from us, about 15 miles. But um, a lot of great people and a lot of great memories about Beacon.
1: So, uh, so you go for, so you graduate from Beacon High School and you go to Ryder in New Jersey. And again, you're playing basketball. Your roommate is Mickey valvano, jim's uh, one of Jim's brothers. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your years at Ryder. and when when did you catch the coaching bug? I mean, I know that in in you know, kind of in reading in doing a little bit of reading, I know that at one point you were thinking of, you know, kind of following your father into the business and and going to embalming school at Simmons Institute of Funeral Services. But then you decided to give coaching a shot. What was kind of the the trigger for that?
2: Well, when I got out of Ryder in 59 that summer, uh, I was home working with my dad in funerals and a high school coach named Tom Winterbottom was coaching Beacon High School. And he wanted me to coach the summer league team because he wasn't allowed to coach under state rules. So I coached the summer league team, and I really got hooked on it. So I asked my mom and dad if I could delay delay in bombing school up at Syracuse at Simmons and go get a master's degree, but um, also help out with a coaching program at Ryder. And uh, they said, yeah, Richard, go do it. So I go back to Ryder, and um, I end up like being a graduate assistant. And Little Ryder College was going to play mighty NYU back then, uh and they hadn't lost a game since uh this is like 62 uh, they hadn't lost a home game since 1942 and so I'm scouting them and um against Iona and Hoster and I tell the coaches if we do ABC and offense and ABC and defense we can beat them and so they said Digger you put in the game plan so I end up doing that and we go up to uh nyu where they haven't lost you know since 1944 i mean and this was 64 and we end up beating them and i said okay i can do this well from there i end up coaching at saint James high school in hazel pennsylvania and i end up going with dick uh, dick Carter from rider college he was an assistant at penn and came to rider to coach a year after i left and he was going back to penn because jack mccluskey was leaving penn as head coach and going to wake forest so I went with Harder, and I spent four years at Penn helping them build Penn into not just an Ivy League power but a national power, and then the Fordham job opened, and I take that team that was 10 and 15. We put in a full-court press and the same players. We end up going 26-3, and three and uh, the Notre Dame job had opened. But in 65, when I was at St. James, I wrote Eric Parsegan, head football coach at Notre Dame, a letter telling him I love Notre Dame, the essence of Notre Dame, and what he did in football. Um, I was going to try to do someday in basketball, and six years later, at the age of 29, I ended up getting a Notre Dame job after Fordham, and spent 20 years here, and we had great success and great players, but the most important thing with all my players was to teach them how to play the game of life after game of basketball, and, and in teaching leadership, which I think is four characteristics, creativity, risk taker, street smart survivor, all those guys had a life after basketball, including my guys at Notre Dame, and that's the most successful feeling you have as a coach when you develop a student athlete so they can play the game of life after the game of basketball.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's there's a lot there that I want to get into, and and I'll jump right to you know one of the things you just said. I think I saw that every kid who played for you at Notre Dame who stayed for four years, there were 56 of them, every one of those guys graduated uh from school. So if if you know, one thing a parent could trust was that if their kid went and played for you for four years, they got a degree.
2: Well that's the thing I did in the home visit. I always look at the mother in the home visit and just say, Mom, I don't care about the NBA. I just want to guarantee you your son's going to graduate from Notre Dame. And they all did.
1: Yeah. So so going back for a second though, when when you when you you know you're you're a grad assistant at Ryder, you have that big win over NYU, you take the head coaching job at St. Gabriel's and Hazleton, PA. You come in and you basically tell them we're going to run a full court press and you do it. And you guys win a class C state championship right off the bat in your first year. Um, so that obviously confirms for you that, you know, you can do this. Um, and it's fascinating when you, know, as you mentioned, you, you hook up with Dick Harder at uh, Penn and you are in addition to coaching and I think you were coaching the freshman and working with him. And, and this is a guy who would go on to coach at Oregon and have a lot of success out there with like this very aggressive defense and, and you know, very physical style of play. I think they called them the kamikaze kids. Um, uh-huh. But you were also doing a lot of recruiting for him. You were like his chief recruiter, um, which obviously in college basketball is, is a great skill to have. Um, tell me a little bit about that, kind of developing your recruiting chops under Harder.
2: Well, also under harder was a guy named Tom Petroff, who was also a baseball coach, was your assistant basketball coach. And he really became my mentor. And I spent a lot of time with him talking about recruiting and, and how you get these guys to play to their potential. And he was a big influence in my life. But I think the most important thing was to go recruit at Penn, to recruit not just the Ivy League, but we were selling. Bill Bradley had great success at, at Princeton, obviously, and he played for the New York Knicks. And uh, I remember recruiting a guy named Corky Calhoun from 101 New York place in Waukegan, Illinois. His address is still in my head and he was a great player. And then Bob Morris was from the Philadelphia area and he was a great player. And we, we built Penn into national uh, power and harder was the guy leading the attack on that. And he just was a great coach. As you said, he went on to Oregon to have success.
1: Yeah. And, and then, and I'm, I'm curious about this one. You have a relationship with a guy named Johnny Drews, who's one of the seven blocks of granite at Fordham, with with Vince Lombardi and Alex Wojewoitz, who's also in the Hall of Fame, and and Johnny Drews is one of those seven blocks of granite. He goes on to be an assistant coach at Notre Dame with Frank Leahy, or I should say under Frank Leahy and Terry Brennan. You know Johnny, and he introduces you to Moose Krause, who's the you know kind of legendary athletic director at Notre Dame. And he introduces you to him. So, you you know, you, you start to develop a little bit of a relationship with him. Um, how, how how did the relationship with Drew's come about? Because it factors into a few things that, you know, kind of impact your career going forward.
2: Well, when I was at St. Gabe's the summer before we started uh, school at St. Gabe's, I worked in and Brickyard for a guy named uh, Hugh Campbell and his son, John Campbell, and I were great friends. Well, then when I was hearing rumors about Johnny D leaving when I was an assistant at Penn uh, going to leave Notre Dame someday, I uh, got a hold of Johnny Drew's and he said, hey, your buddy, um, or John, uh, the, the father, and he said, hey, you, your buddy John married Johnny Drew's daughter, and he's down in New Jersey, so I got a hold of Drew's and And he knew who I was because of uh, his son-in-law. And the next thing you know, I ended up meeting with Moose Krause. But there was also a guy named Roger Valbasiri, who was the SID at Notre Dame. And I got to know him really well. And when I was first at Fordham, he saw me sat next to me, actually, in Milwaukee, when I was scouting Notre Dame Marquette. Al McGuire was at Marquette and Notre Dame, the great player, Austin Carr. And he's watching me, taking my notes. And he tells another friend who was working in development at Notre Dame, jim gibbons go watch this guy coach um i'm gonna obviously the notre dame game is one thing but watch him coach against al mcguire and marquette and we lose the game in overtime and they both convinced father joyce that i was the guy to replace um to replace johnny drews and and that's when i started back in 71 here at notre dame and uh obviously uh it was one of those times where coming in here and building this program like football to become a national power and play coast to coast against teams from like UCLA twice a year and playing Kansas uh, on the road, South Carolina with Frank McGuire, who was a f- great coach at North Carolina and playing electric Giselle in Maryland and of course St. John's with Carter and all those guys. So it was all in that process of, of, taking Notre Dame basketball and getting it to become a national power like Notre Dame football. And that was the whole process where it all came together.
1: Yeah. And and I love, I love that story about Valdeceri. Cause as I understand it um, there's a couple facets to that you're like you said, you're scouting. So you're at Fordham and you're scouting both Notre Dame and Marquette. You sit next to Valdeceri, who's the SID and you, you know, you start chatting him up. In the tunnel or, you know, somehow in the bowels of the garden before your game against Notre Dame, he says, as you mentioned, Austin Carr is their star. He's averaging over 30 points a game. And he says something to you like, OK, well, how are you going to defend him? I, You know, I don't have time to go back and tell the coach. So, you know, you're you, whatever you tell me is good with me. And you say, we're going to play a zone, which you guys hadn't played. And it works. <laughs> you, pl- you play the zone and, and it works and you beat him. And obviously that has, uh, like, as you mentioned, that has, you know, quite a uh, an impact. And then when you beat, when you play Marquette a few games later, as you said, you lose in overtime, but Al McGuire is quoted as saying afterwards, uh, that that's the best coach team we've played. Um, uh, do, you, do you remember that conversation with Valdiserri in the tunnel?
2: Well, it, it, the, Roger was talking to Johnny Drews in the tunnel, and I wanted to say hello to Johnny Drews, and I saw Roger with him. And I went over and said a hello, hello to both of them. And then that's when Drew says, what's your game plan today? And I said, I can't tell you. And Roger, go tell Johnny, you know, Johnny D. And I had, and Roger says, no, 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 I want to hear you. And we said, we're going to play Austin Carr. He hasn't played well against zones. They lost to Illinois of their six losses. Five were against zones. And Illinois was their last loss against the zone. So we. Played a 2 3 zone, double teamed him every time he got the ball. Let said Catless shoot the ball. He was like 6'10. Let him shoot the ball in a high post because he was missing a lot and he wasn't getting his rebounds. And then the last ten minutes of the game, we started the press. We ended up winning, I believe it was like ninety-two, eighty-seven, and beat Austin Carr. And that that's how the whole thing started.
1: Okay. Yeah. And and the the Fordham job is an interesting one. So, you know, obviously you've been at Penn working with Dick Carter. And then you go to Fordham, and they had been they had had some success in the sixties. But the year before you get there, they're ten and fifteen. And somebody says, "Why are you taking this job?" And you say something along the lines of, "Well, they know how to lose. You know, now I'm going to try to teach them how to win." Um, and there's a there's a guy named Frank McLaughlin who's who had played for them in the sixties, very good player. And you bring him on, and you know to it's it you know kind of helps with the transition, right? Like you're coming in, you know, from as an outsider and you've got a guy who knows the program well, and he's one of your assistants would go on to, uh, to coach at a few different schools to include Harvard. Um, tell me a little bit about that transition into Fordham.
2: Well, it was an interesting situation because again, that's where, uh, Johnny Drews came back into the picture to help me get the job. And, um I was waiting to get the Seaton Hall job, but uh, didn't get it. And Richie Reagan, uh, he ends up hiring Bill Raftery. Mm-hmm. And so I end up going to Fordham. And Frank was an assistant up at Holy Cross, and I brought him back to Fordham because he knew the school and knew everything to go there. And, and we just decided, that here's what we're going to do. And we put in the press, and uh, the guys that were all back Uh, we had like seven different press drills to make the press work and they just fell in love with it and uh, it all came together and a guy named Jack Bjork one night we're speaking in the dorm trying to get the students fired up and he says we got this press and it works and we're going to beat people and I turned to Frank and I said they believe in the press and that's what's going to get it going and we did and you know end up I think going like 26 and 3 and beat Notre Dame in the garden, lose Sue Marquette in the garden in overtime and just had a great season and then because uh, in the background, when I wrote Eric Parsi in my letter at St. Gaines back in 65, telling my love Notre Dame, the essence of Notre Dame, what you're doing football. Someday I want to do in football and, and do it in basketball. It was time and the job opened and uh, I had the right connections to get it. And I ended up coming here for 20 years and having the success we had.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and, you know, that, that one year note at Fordham is interesting. So, you, you mentioned that Bill Raftery gets the Seton Hall job. You guys go in and beat Raftery and, and Seton Hall. You beat BC, which has Chuck Daly. You beat Army, coached by Bob Knight. Uh, you go up to UMass and beat a team led by Dr. J. Um, okay. In addition to obviously beating Notre Dame um, and and playing Marquette, really tough. Um, and, and obviously after beating Furman in the first round of the tournament, you get to the Sweet 16 where you lose to Villanova. Um, and so, you, so you finish in the top 10, I think you're ninth in the country. Um, and, and like you said, uh, you, the, you know, Notre Dame comes calling one thing. I, one thing that I found really intriguing, obviously this is one of the best years a college basketball team has had in New York period. Um, and, uh, uh, Howard Cosell is in addition to doing his national work is a local, uh, radio and TV personality and you develop a relationship with him. And at one point he's quoted as saying there there was a famous fighter from beacon new york named melio patina and he says in his day melio patina brought the bacon back to beacon and now the undertaker's son from beacon is taking fordham to the promised land uh tell me a little bit about your relationship with cosell
2: well he was special just a great guy became great friends and uh he just loved that Fordham team as everybody else did in New York and he was one of my prom- best promoters of what we were as a team as well as getting the city all fired up and both those games in the garden against Notre Dame and Marquette were sellout crowds, the first sellout crowds of some 19,000 in the new garden. So Cassell made me a star uh, and got me to know and understand how to handle the media and of course he was on TV a lot with his other show and and uh, he just became a mentor with me as far as handling the media and knowing how to make yourself available at any time, like you and I doing this show today.
1: Sure. And that team, there were two guys who would go on and, and, and play some in the NBA, uh, Kenny Charles and Charlie Yelverton. But there was also a guy, the son of the AD, who was a very good all round athlete. I know he played football also. P.J. Carlissimo was a backup guard. Tell me a little bit about P.J. and your experience with him that year.
2: Well, P.J. was probably the biggest inspiration on the campus as far as me getting involved with the dorms and making things happen. And he just was one of those guys that knew and how and understand. You know, his dad was at one time was uh, up at Scranton University where I think he was the AD before he came to Fordham. And um, P.J., obviously, when I got to the team and the guys that are all back, he was one of them. And he was one of those silent leaders behind the scenes. And obviously he became a great coach himself out on the West coast. And uh, uh, just one of the players that helped Fordham team in the locker room, stay together and believe that they're going to win and made a lot of things happen behind the scenes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so you, you have that, that you know that that great run at Fordham and as you said uh Johnny D is leaving Notre Dame and you're you're being you know given the run you'd had at Fordham that year you're getting offers from a number of different schools I think Virginia Tech is one and the offer from Notre Dame is basically half of what some of these other offers are um but you take it for you know for the obvious reason that this was your dream job um and I think that kind of kicks off a very long-term relationship with the president uh, Theodore Hesburgh, uh, uh, Edmund Joyce, and uh, the athletic director, director Moose Krause. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of the, the early part of the relationship with those three men.
2: Well, Moose, obviously, at AD, was a great athlete at Notre Dame, and he was in charge of the sports, and he's the one I had to lunch with that time that Johnny Drew set up. But Father DeJoyce was executive vice president, and he uh, ran a school financially for Father Hesburgh, who was a godfather of the civil rights act and i became a disciple of Hesper. he was so inspirational to me and and what he did in spirituality is the reason why i'm still here because of the spirituality of notre dame and Hesper not only with the civil rights act but he just had a way with people around the world and knew how to get a hold of them and get involved with them and get them to believe in making a difference in other people's lives and that never left me and I think when you look at the leadership of Notre Dame back then with Hesburgh, Joyce, and Krause, that's why you see the Notre Dame of today and what it is and how it is and the success they're having because of what those guys did to plant the seed so this place could grow the way it's grown.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and mind you, everything we're talking about right now, this you know, incredible run at Fordham and and you know, kind of moving over to Notre Dame, this is all happening when you're like twenty nine or thirty years old. I mean, it's extraordinary how young you are at this point. Um, and 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 I have to throw in there also since we just talked about Cosell a second ago, while you're, you know kind of making this move from Fordham to Notre Dame, obviously, he's a big champion and fan of yours. He's also telling the Knicks along the way that, hey, when Red Holtzman decides to step down, you got to, you know, you got to get this guy. Um, was that something that you ever, you know, were considering seriously, or was your mind always, you know, just stay at Notre Dame and well, be a coach uh,
2: Howard set me up with the interviews, but uh, I, I'd thought about it for a couple of years, but after a while, I just said, nah, I know the garden and I know the Knicks and I'm from New York, but my love's still Notre Dame and I'm not going to leave. So after about two or three years where Holtzman was still around, uh even after he left uh I said no I'm not interested and that's where it all changed and I still stayed at Notre Dame
1: yeah and ultimately you're you recommended Hubie Brown right
2: yeah I did I told him he was a guy that hour and that's who they hired
1: yeah so so you get to Notre Dame and they they uh Austin Carr as who we talked about a, a second ago um he's graduated now he's he's gone off and been a top pick of the Cleveland Cavaliers and that first year, 71-72, is a tough year. You guys go six and twenty, big losses to Indiana, UCLA. Um, but it's interesting. You lose to to Kentucky and and the legendary Adolph Rupp by 16, which obviously you know, no coach wants to lose by, but obviously it's a hell of a lot closer than some of the others. But he calls you up with some advice. What, what did uh, tell me about that call with Rupp?
2: Well, it wasn't so much that they gave me advice. It was after the game that night when we lost in Freedom Hall to Adolph Ruff. It was about midnight. And he calls me up in the hotel. And he says, Coach Phelps, he said, you lose to Bob Knight ninety four twenty nine 29 by 65. Then you lose to UCLA and John Wooden by 56. And tonight we had you thirty down 31 and we only won by 16. He says, Coach Phelps, what do you think's wrong with my team? I said, "Sorry, Coach, I let
1: you down." <laughs> That's great.
3: Um,
1: and then, and then by the next year, you've turned it around. You're 18 and 12. Now, all of a sudden, that 65 point loss to Indiana is a two point loss, and you know you, you lose by two to Kentucky. Um, and then, you know, kind of every big program turnaround needs that that big game, that that marquee game, that signature game. Um, and yours was you beat Kansas by two uh, in the middle of that season, and from there you beat Marquette, you beat Villanova, you beat uh, a kind of a top ten St. John's team. Tell me about that Kansas win, and and like in the moment, you know what what was your take on that?
2: Well, after the first year, the second year, as you said, we end up getting to the NIT, and we get to the NIT championship, winning three games before we lost to Virginia Tech in the championship game, but. You know, to win on the road, especially at Kansas, is always a big win. And it's one of the great places to play, one of the great arenas with the crowd. and uh, You know, walk, chalk, Jayhawk, they just all have it going all the time. But, uh, yeah, it was just confidence. My first year, we didn't have any players. So all those guys had graduated. And Brokaw and Clay were freshmen. Freshmen didn't play. And Shoemate was sick. He had a bad heart situation, so he didn't play. Then mm-hmm. the next year, we get the NIT. We get these players coming. But the year... We swinging around in uh, 73-74 when be UCLA and then the 88-game re- winning streak January 19, 1974. It was Adrian Dantley added to Dice Martin, Dwight Clay, Gary Brokaw, and John Shumate. Those five on the floor being down 11 with 322 to go and coming back and shutting them out and uh, scoring, outscoring a 12-zip to win the game when Clay shot in the corner. Um, that was the whole scenario of building this program into a national power. And after that game, we became uh, number one in the country.
1: Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, you're, you're down 11 with uh, you know, kind of three and change to go, you call a timeout and, you know, obviously you're a student of the game. You've read John Wooden's book where he says that calling timeouts is a sign of weakness, but Hey, you're down 11. You got to do something from that timeout. You guys go six for six. UCLA goes 0 for 6, and you win, they don't score another point the rest of the game. And you're quoted afterwards as saying, um, you know, tell Coach Wooden I read his book. <laughs> um, yeah. what, what was, what's what's like the handshake like after the game with somebody like that who's just won, you know, 88 straight you know, game? I,
2: I had the greatest respect for John Wooden. He coached like 19 years here at South Kent Bend Central High School. He mm-hmm. coached there. He grew up in Indiana. He went to Purdue. He coasted Indiana State before he went out to UCLA, and then obviously he won 10 national championships. Unbelievable uh, uh, what he did and how he did it. So he was a great guy, and I always had great respect for him. But, uh, you know, the winning streak, then after that game I went over and shook his hand, but the students rushed the floor, and I couldn't stay long and talk. And one of my assistants and somebody else picked me up and put him on their shoulders, and they're carrying me off to the center of the court where the crowd is. So we didn't talk that much after that game.
1: Hmm. yeah and that that is amazing like going back I mean this is obviously when Notre Dame was an independent but you guys would play home and home with UCLA every year which is pretty unique I mean you know obviously you were you were playing a top schedule every year anyway Kentucky Indiana you know Marquette etc but home and home with UCLA is pretty unique
2: yeah it was and uh, that was established before I got here so I just inherited that when I took the job over so Yeah, we had a great relationship, and uh, we were the first non-conference team to win in Pauley Pavilion, their home court, and we're the first school ever to win four straight at Pauley. This is after Wooden left. And uh, that relationship with UCLA was one of the great ones. It was no different than Southern Cal and Notre Dame in football. It was UCLA and Notre Dame in basketball in the college ranks.
1: Yep. Yeah. And that season also, I mean, obviously that that win over uh UCLA is iconic for, you know, for very good reason. But, you know, kind of also in that season, in the span of eleven days, you guys beat three of the final four teams that year. You beat, you know, obviously US UCLA famously, but also Kansas and Marquette, who would all, you know, feature in that uh final four that year. Um and, you know, so which which obviously raises the issue that you brought up a few minutes ago, which is, you know, you were always going out of your way to make sure you were scheduling top teams. And I saw a great quote from you. Somebody said, you know, you beat or you said something like, yeah, well, we beat seven top teams, uh, you know, number one teams over the years. How? Because we played them. <laughs> you can't beat them if you don't play them.
2: Yeah, and we play that schedule not just to get an NCA bid, but to get a good seed in the NCAA tournament because of the strength of our schedule.
1: Yeah, and and something you alluded to also a few minutes ago talking about P.J. Carlissimo that you I, I think you carried over to New, Notre Dame years was you were always looking to kind of meet with and engage the students. And it could be talking basketball or sports, but it could also be politics and religion and business. Um, you had a real relationship with the student body. T- tell me a little bit about that.
2: Well, I would speak in every dorm in the fall, especially October and November before the season would start. And I would just tell them about the strength of Notre Dame and not just while they're there, but once they leave, it's one of the most influential schools in the world based on the graduates and what they've done and achieved and getting them ready, not just for that, but to win in a game of life, uh, to make them understand that when you go out in the real world, um, you're going to make a difference the way and believing in what Father Hesburgh did with that Civil Rights Act. and I think uh, getting those students all fired up—that's why that place was uh, a tough place to play in visiting teams. Even that UCLA game when we ended the streak, wouldn't switch basket because he didn't want to face four thousand students back then. Because we used to get six thousand on campus as students, and four thousand would show up at the games.
1: Um, you know, and and speaking of Hesburgh, I, I know you've written a few books. You've you've written an autobiography, but you also wrote a book, a biography of Hesburg um, and, you know, kind of of his life and also what he meant to you. Um, tell me a little bit about that.
2: Well, Father Hesburgh at the age, he's from Syracuse, New York, and the age of 16, he ends up at Notre Dame. At the age of six, he always wanted to be a priest. And then he ends up dying here at Notre Dame at the age of 97. So he was around a long time, but then he and President Eisenhower are great friends. And Ike asked them to come up with a Civil Rights Act, so three men from the South and three from the North, they go up to the Land of Lakes, where Notre Dame has the retreat place with the priest, and they wrote the Civil Rights Act, and they gave it to Ike in, back in, when they got it done in 57, and then he gave it to Kennedy, who was going to use it to run his uh, second term, but he got assassinated, and that's when LBJ got it passed in 64. And So Father Hesburgh, to me, is the godfather of the Civil Rights Act, but... He just had a way with people and could inspire people who had no affiliation with Notre Dame. He spoke at a luncheon in Chicago and Marty Ogren, who was his driver, was bringing him back after that luncheon. Father Ted said, who is that woman, Joan Crock, that came up and talked to me after. And she said, father, what you doing, you know, you, you with the game of life. And I want to help those that have not that you talked about, how do I do that? And so Marty said, Well, Joan Crock, because he never went to McDonald's in life. And he said to her, He said to Hesper, Joan Crock is, you know, part of the McDonald's family. Her husband started McDonald's. So he invites her for a football weekend that fall, and they're riding around the campus in a golf cart. And in this building, we do South America, and then they keep going. And in this building, we do Asia, and they keep going. in this building, we do Europe. She says, You don't have one building for all this? So she gets back home and she sends them a thank you note and it is a check for ten million dollars. And so they have a groundbreaking ceremony and Joan comes back with her husband and they're digging and after a year Hesper goes into the development office and says, What's the interest on ten million? And they said, Ten percent well good, send a check for a million dollars because we don't have one brick in the ground yet for what we're trying to do with for Joan Crock in that building. Well, <laughs> It's his birthday, and he's up the Land of Lakes fishing, which he loved to do. And she calls him up, and says Happy birthday! Did you get my card? I said No, John, I'll be back this weekend, Joan. I'll look for it then. And he gets back, there's a check in there for twenty five million. And then when the Crocs all passed on, uh, they sent uh, their foundation fifty million dollars to Notre Dame. So that's you know all that money, but that's the the life of Hesburgh and what he did to people. And I'll never forget, I was in the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee for some 20 years, and uh, we we're going to do a Hesburgh stamp. And uh, this is after I'd left the committee, and I had influence, and I wanted to get him a birthday stamp. And and I call up one of these guys, Jim Cochran, who was the vice president of marketing, I said, how did the Kennedy stamp go at Harvard that April? Because we are going to do a Hesburgh stamp that September. He said, "Oh, went good, but not as good as, as Hesburg stamps going to be." And he said, "This guy came up to me after the Kennedy stamp ceremony. He said, "Can I come to the Hesburg stamp ceremony because Father Hesburg used to babysit for my mother and father while he went back to school, my father, for my brother and me, and I'd like to bring my mother to that ceremony. she's still alive." And he said, okay, here's here's a pen. you know, give me the address. Then this black guy comes up and says, "I'd like to go to the Hesburg stamp ceremony." can I have the address, please, and get an invite? Because he made me who I am today. And that's how he was with people outside the university. And that's why, to me, he should be up for sainthood. And, and you know, he's no different than Mother Teresa and what she did in her life. But he always, and as a game priest, we'd always have mass four hours before a game. And he did seven masses for us during, like, 20 years. He went 7-0 and and beat three number one teams. Number one, San Francisco with Bill Cartwright. Then he beats Al McGuire and Marquette. Then he beats Ray uh, Meyer and DePaul when they were number one. And I got my arm around Hesburg and that game was in double overtime. And I said, Father Ted, I got my arm around him walking off the court after the game, I said, Father, man, a lot of prayers for this one, huh, double overtime? He says, yeah, Digger, I was running out of Hail Mary's. <laughs> That's vintage <laughs> Hesburg.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great. <laughs> um, that's funny. And, and your I mean, your recruiting is, is phenomenal at this point. You've got, you know, Adrian Dantley in you you're bringing in Bill Lambeer and Bruce flowers. Um, and a, a couple of things, you know, kind of stand out that are pretty interesting. 75, 76, you guys are very good. You're number seven in the country, your top team, top 10 team, you lose to Michigan in the NCAs, and they, they go on to play in the final. Indiana runs the table that year last team to this day to go undefeated for the season. And you lost to them by three points, uh, which, you know, looked to be one of their two, excuse me, one of their two or three toughest games of the year. What, what was it like playing, you know, again, you're playing Indiana every year in state Bobby Knight. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of that relationship, you and Bobby Knight.
2: Well, Bob Knight and I became friends way back in probably early sixties. Um, He uh, was coaching high school, and when Tate's Lock took over Army at West Point, he became assistant. And um, the coach that I coached the Summer League for, Tom Winterbottom, was from Ohio. So there was a clinic, Valley Forge, outside of Philly, and uh, Winterbottom wanted to see Tate's, and there's Knight as a young assistant. So he and I became friends. And then in 1965, we won that Class C state championship. Bob Knight came over for West Point and he spoke at our championship dinner. So that's how our relationship just became what it was. And then of course he ends up in Indiana and we were always friends. He was my big brother. He's like six months older than me and it was sad. His birthday is October 25th. And um, I usually call him up when cell. He Never answers. So I call his wife, uh, his wife, Karen. and She's, Start crying on the phone for at least five minutes on the phone call. She said, You're not going to make it, Digger. He's really in bad shape. And a week later, he dies. And he was never going to have a funeral. Uh, he didn't believe in funerals, never went to funerals. You, you know, you live your life and that's it. And so I called up Karen and um, they had him cremated. she had the ashes right in front of him. And Patrick, his son, he was there with her. And I gave my condolences and helped her through this grieving process. And As Pat said, we don't care what the university wants to do. We're not doing anything, and we're not going to any events. And the only thing that happened is that the team put his initials RMK, Robert Montgomery Knight, on their uniforms, and they still have them, I believe. But
1: Hmm.
2: that's all he wanted, that's how he was. But to me, he was just a great friend, a big brother, and uh, always a big influence in my life. And we were just uh, sad when it happened when he just got sick and died.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, passing of a legend, and uh, that's pretty amazing that he came down, uh, you know, from West Point to uh, to speak at the you know high school state championship dinner. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. and then then we get to seventy seven seventy eight season, and this is obviously a great year for you guys. You're you're twenty three and eight um, during the season. You, you know, again, playing a top schedule, you beat a top 10 UCLA team, you lose to number one, Kentucky, who would, who would ultimately go on to win the title that year. You lose by a couple, um, you, uh, beat UCLA again. Now they're number three, you beat number one, Marquette. Um, uh, and you've got, you know, Bill Lambier, Kelly Trapuca as a freshman, Orlando Woolridge as a freshman, Bill Hanslick. Um, you also have a guy on the roster, Stan Wilcox who would go on to be the ad at florida state you know a lot of people talk about coaching trees you not only have a pretty extensive coaching tree you've got a lot of guys who went into administration also to include stan wilcox frank mclaughlin from fordham i mentioned earlier uh, uh, john Paxson, you know goes on to you know run the bulls um tell me a little bit about you know kind of your coaching tree and, and what it means to you
2: well the whole thing was is you know you're you're saying earlier um when you look at the coaches Stan wilcox is now number three in the ncaa in indianapolis so he went to law school after he got to notre dame and ends up going to florida state and then to the ncaa and he's number three in the ncaa uh you know paxton for 17 years ran bulls after he played with michael jordan a guy named scott paddock uh, he became president of um usa racing and uh another guy uh Uh, Jamar Jackson became president of Hertz. And the thing was with all these guys, I'm teaching them through leadership, those characteristics, how to play the game of life after playing a game of basketball. And they all graduated, but they all had those characteristics instilled in them just from being around the basketball program and go on to become leaders of major corporations and major institutions. And that's, That's what the real value is of having that Notre Dame degree and having the influence of Notre Dame outside the university.
1: Yeah. A a couple of things I read about that I just found I thought were fascinating. So we talked at the outset about the graduation rate being 100%. You would put up the front page of the newspaper in the locker room every day uh, before practice. Players would come in. They'd look at it. And out on the court, while you're running your offense and your defense, you're also asking them questions about current events. Um, yeah. You had each senior; uh, one of the requirements playing with you was that they had to have job interviews lined up before the season began to make sure that they were, you know, kind of tracking towards, you know, something to do after after uh, you know graduation. And right. you would also, when you were on the road you would have a player speak. You'd meet with alumni groups. If you were playing, I guess, like at USF, you'd meet with, you know, kind of West coast alums and you would have one of your players address that group to get used to public speaking. Um, I mean, all really intriguing. Uh, Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of the inspiration behind that.
2: Well, it was all to get them ready for the game of life. I mean, you know, I look back to, uh, what goes on in college sports and a lot of schools weren't graduating players back then, let alone getting them ready for the game of life after basketball. So to get involved with the real world, the corporate world, um, and teaching them how to speak uh, in front of these people was all part of that process to not just get a job, but also someday have a company that you're giving out jobs and running that company. So that was a total faction of what it was to be at Notre Dame and once you left Notre Dame and left basketball, how you're going to play in the game of life.
1: Sure. Yeah. And so, and so, and so then jumping back to it, so that year is your final four year. So you guys go into the tournament, you beat Houston and Utah, you beat Ray Meyer and DePaul to get into the final four and that's a loaded final four. I mean, your roster has a lot of guys who would go on to play in the NBA. Obviously you play Duke with, you know, kind of Jaminsky and Gene Banks and Spinarkel that Kentucky team and the Arkansas team, each team's got, you know, kind of three and four, if not more future NBA players. Tell me a little bit about the experience of the final four. Obviously you guys lose to Duke in the semifinal, but, but tell me a little bit about the experience.
2: Well, it was a great experience for the players. And for me to get there, It's you just want to get there. I wanted to do what Al McGuire did in 77 when Al McGuire won that national championship, he sat on the bench and started crying after the game because he said, I'm done. There's nothing more for me to do. And I said, Al, who was another mentor of mine, because he taught me the game of psych, especially getting on referees. And Knight taught me as a mentor, the game of defense and strategy. I want to do what McGuire did. And so when we didn't win it, you know, I'm saying to myself, now I got to try it again next year and see if I can come back. Because if I won it, I was going to do what he did, retire.
1: Mm, Interesting. Yeah. And that next year, is a really interesting year for, you know, for basketball as a whole. So you, you guys make it to the elite eight, you lose to Michigan state, which has a sophomore point guard named magic Johnson. And obviously they famously play Indiana state in the final um, Larry and, bird. with Larry bird. And, and that's a year where uh, you guys, again, you beat, you know, whatever number two UCLA, you're fourth in the country. Um, you've had this great year what was what was it like the you know the first time you see Magic Johnson play in college? I mean, obviously, one year later he's holding up the NBA championship trophy. Um, what was it like seeing uh, Magic Johnson up close?
2: Well, he was good. Don't get me wrong, but the guy to beat it was Greg Kelser. Sure, he had like twenty six or something in that game, and Magic was okay, contained, but we lost the game in a close game. It was Kelser to beat us because of how good he was
1: offensively. Yeah, Kelser, who would go on and play a little bit for the Pistons, I believe. And then after that, you guys go and you play, you beat in 7980 season, you beat DePaul in February, you know, kind of in the winter of that year. They've got Mark Aguire, Terry Cummings, a loaded team. Um, you beat them. And then the next season, within 12 months of that first win, you guys beat number one Kentucky. And then you beat number one, Virginia, with Ralph Sampson. So three, I alluded to it at the very beginning of the show, three times in the span of 12 months, you beat the number one. Um, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you know, like Ralph Sampson was just, you know, a phenomenon at that point. Um, tell me a little bit about that. And and as an aside, let me say also, obviously things change over time. But back then, it just felt like in-season, regular season games there was just like this monumental weight put on them. And those games against DePaul and Virginia were just absolutely must see. They turned into great games, but everybody was going to watch them anyway. Tell me a little bit about those games.
2: Well, because like I said earlier, we played a national schedule. We played anybody. We beat seven number one teams because we played them. Yep. And, you know, with with what went on with uh, Virginia or DePaul or Marquette or whoever, uh, we just played those teams. So, You're playing them to win, and that's the thing, especially if you got it down to four minutes where it's close, then the last two minutes find a way to steal it, which we did a lot in those games. So from that standpoint, I just think that getting my guys ready to play that type of schedule uh, for the guys that went on to play in the NBA or went on to play in Europe, and then after that they get in their careers, I think the game of basketball got them ready for the game of life and their success in the game of life.
1: Sure. Sure. And, and obviously over your career, you win well over 400 games, but you don't win them all. And in the NCAA tournament that year, uh, BYU and Danny Ainge beat you guys. He goes coast to coast as basically as time expires. Tell me a little bit about that one. um, You know, and watching him, obviously phenomenal athlete, great pro basketball player, but also played for the Toronto blue Jays in baseball.
2: No, he was a great athlete. BYU back then was a great school. And, Sadly, but Orlando Woolridge was under the basket, and uh, <laughs> the week before against Dayton, he hurt his knee, and I played him in that second half, and he shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done it, but we won the game, I guess, at Dayton. I forget. But anyhow, Ainge comes down, and if Woolridge wasn't hurt, he probably would have blocked a shot. But you got to give credit to Danny Ainge, because he was a great success with with the Celtics also. He was a great player, a great scorer, and he was determined to win that game, and that's We played against great athletes, so you're not going to beat them all, all the time. You expect somebody like Danny Ainge to come to like Mark McGuire, or Ralph Sampson or whoever, because we played those guys.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm intrigued. There was a game the next year. uh, The next year is a tough year. You guys have a losing record. You play Kentucky and you're just you're just outmanned. And you from the outset, you go into a stall. And this kind of goes back to, you know, as I'm reading about it and watching some of the clips, I'm thinking back to the Fordham game with Austin Carr, where you just change things up and you, you know, you go with a zone, something totally unexpected. You're playing Kentucky, you go into a stall, and you almost pull off the win uh, in, in what was a down year for you guys. Tell me a little bit about that one.
2: Well, it was another way just to go out and play a different type of game. And in the first half, the Kentucky fans are yelling, let them play, Digger, let them play. And then it's a two-point game. And then all of a sudden, they're yelling at Joe B. Hall, Joe B. Hall, you better start playing. We're going to lose this game. But obviously, they beat us. But, you know, you, you just do it to do it. And that's if it works, it works. And if you got a chance to beat somebody that way, go ahead and do it. And so just being multiple in game plans and making things work for what you can do to stay in a game That's all kept us in that Kentucky game down there in Louisville.
1: Yeah. I mean, it just jumps off the page at you 34, 28 in overtime. (laughs) So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, and and I think I'd read that you had kind of deduced that a couple of teams over the years had been able to frustrate Kentucky a little bit about with that. So that was, you know, that kind of played into it a little bit. Um, And a few years later, again, you know, you guys are, you know, winning 20 games you play Maryland. You beat them by five. They're top five in the country. And Len Bias is on that squad. Uh, obviously, he tragically dies a year or two later. Uh, what was uh, what was your impression watching Len Bias play?
2: He was one of the great ones. Would have been one of the great ones down the road. And uh, he just made things happen both ends of the floor, offensively and defensively. And, you know, one of the great players we faced. And, you know, you can go through my whole game plan of, Games over the years and every player, every team had one or two great players that you had a container. If you're going to win. And he was one that Maryland that was unbelievable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you, you soon get a a point guard who does something that it's not easy to do. He starts, you know, basically from, from, uh, from his freshman year on, David rivers comes out of St. Anthony legendary program here in Jersey city uh, playing for Bob Hurley um, and, you know, again, I, I, think of, you know, you're obviously your, your skills as a recruiter and also, you know, the, the, a program like that, which is just churning out talent. Um, w- you know, what type of relationship did you have with the high school coaches? Uh, was that something you nurtured? Like, did you have camps that you brought them to, or how, how did that work?
2: Yeah, a lot of those coaches worked in camps. We used to run three weeks at camp, two weeks in June, one in July here at Notre Dame, and then I ran one up at Marist College in Poughkeepsie in August so I can go back home with my family. And a lot of high school coaches were the coaches that worked at camps, but Hurley was special. And David Rivers, uh, as a point guard, he was special as a point guard because most point guards, what they do is they're quarterback with the other four guys on their offense and on their team. But Rivers would know what nine guys are doing when he had the ball. He could dribble two dribbles to the right and see the defense shift, and then make throw a pass. And the first time we scrimmage in practice, he hits Kim Tempton, Timmy Kempton, who's like six ten, big guy inside, hits him in the face and the nose, and his nose starts
1: bleeding. The ball goes out of bounds, and Rivers looks at him and says, "You just caused a turnover." So not only a, not only a great point guard and and you know QB, but also a leader too, showing leadership in, as a freshman.
2: Oh, yeah, he was special. He was one of the best ever,
1: yeah. um and then and then you go into broadcasting. you You had done some broadcasting uh, in like I think during eighty four. um but you know you you jump into broadcasting. you're working with, I mean, obviously, you know, sadly, jim valvano is is you know very sick and is passing away but you're kind of replacing him, but working with Dick Vitale and Jay Billis and John Saunders over the years. Tell me a little bit about the transition from coaching to broadcasting.
2: Well, to me, it was uh, because I used to do a, a weekly you know, TV show, so I had the experience when I was coaching. So it was an easy transition. And so mostly it was just being in a position, if I was doing the game, analyze the game. If I was doing the studio, it was give one, two, three reasons why things happened in that first half, and or one, three, two, three things why, you know, second chance points did they get enough, Um, did they do a good job of controlling the boards Uh, just two examples, so it was an easy transition and I really enjoyed it, and then ten years in in the studio and doing games and then we started doing game day on the road, uh, which was you know, new experience, and that all worked out well, but What basically happened after 20 years of coaching and 20 years of doing television and even the year I worked in the White House for George H.W. Bush, uh, the year after I left Notre Dame before television, I just got tired of the travel, especially in January and February because from South Bend, if I had to go someplace, if we're doing game day on the road like out in Arizona, well, I'd have to check flights the day before from South Bend to Cincinnati when there was an airport there that would take you around or from South Bend to Detroit and check the weather channel to see, well, I get to Cincinnati, but can I get to the other area? Well, yeah, where you're coming from, if you've got to go to Durham, uh, they're having a snowstorm the next day. You're not going to get there, so I'd have to leave a day earlier to get there. and And then I would Sunday fly back to Bristol to Hartford, to do big Monday on television and fly home Tuesday and reload again, Thursday to go out of town or Friday to go out of town. And after 10 years of that, I said, enough's enough. I'm done traveling. I've done my tour with ESPN for 20 years. I've done my tour at Notre Dame for 20 years, one year in the white house. I'm tired of travel. And that's what, you know, I decided in 2014 games over.
1: Right. Right. And, and I am fascinated, you know, speaking of travel, you while i guess you know kind of right after you did work in the bush administration that you mentioned you were in the office of national drug control policy right
2: in the white house yeah
1: yeah um you then were an observer of elections in 1993 in cambodia tell me a little bit about that experience
2: yeah uh a good friend of mine named dave wallace who uh notre dame alumnus he asked me to go over, so. I said, yeah. So I went to Cambodia and I was in this one little village uh, out there in the rice paddies and uh, people came in that first day to vote and it was like polls were going to open at eight and people were lining up at five in the morning because mm. they wanted to vote. And it was a great experience getting to know those people and had an election team of a bunch of young kids that worked for me in this polling station, which was an old school that was in this neighborhood where we were out in the white white rice fields. And it was a great experience to see the other part of the world. And that, that taught me about the game of life and different way cultures were put together.
1: Speaking of, you know, kind of the game of life, uh, New Orleans gets hit by hurricane Katrina and, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, devastating and you get involved. And among other things, you help uh, a school, you know, kind of get back on its feet, you get their athletic programs up and running again, and you do something really interesting, especially given the city's, you know, kind of culinary heritage, you help form a culinary academy to train high school kids to get ready to work in restaurants and kitchens in New Orleans, uh, to, you know, kind of get that industry up and running and have kids prepared for, you know, that next chapter. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of the inspiration behind that.
2: Well, I wanted these kids to know that uh, if if you go to some type of program, and because of the number of restaurants in New Orleans, to get them organized, to give these kids mentoring jobs after school, so they learn not just how to cook, but also how to become an owner of a business, it's no different than teaching a kid, uh, once he gets his GED, go to a career academy like we have here in South Bend, and don't worry about not being an electrical engineer. Just become an electrician with your GED because you can make 70,000 years an electrician. So what was so interesting about New Orleans, it was so natural to get these kids involved and get them out of gang life and get them into culinary schools and get them into where they got jobs and end up working in restaurants and ending up owning a restaurant. But at the same time, with the disaster of that Hurricane Katrina, I ended up building two homes for families that needed them with my own money. And one of them to know that they can win the game of life and the families I picked had kids and these kids are in school. And I just wanted them to know, Hey, continue the same process. So your children can go on to higher education, especially you can become a culinary cook and getting a job as running and owning a restaurant.
1: Yeah. Wow. it's amazing. Um, well, <laughs> uh, Digger, I have to, I have to say I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on chasing hardware and speak. I mean, just, you know, from the, from the early days in Beacon and your years at Ryder, you know, your years coaching in Hazleton and then Penn and then, and then obviously the, the extraordinary Cinderella year at Fordham and then, and then the great run at Notre Dame and in broadcasting. Just a, a real pleasure to, you know, kind of walk through it with you and, and to hear the stories. I can't thank you enough for coming on Chasing Hardware.
2: Rich, it's my pleasure and good luck to you and I hope everything works out. You take care.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Digger. Take care. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the Suburbs with "Life Is Like" are going to take us out. Speak to you next time.
3: Life is like. Life is like. What it is. Life is
2: like. Life is like
3: mypatriotsupply.com.